Pedagogo, the podcast for anyone and everyone in higher education. In today's episode, we'll explore the role of community for professional organizations in higher ed. We'll discuss what it takes to make space for innovation while supporting a shared mission and achieving shared goals as a community. Pedagogo, brought to you by ExamSoft, the digital assessment solution that gives you actionable data for improved learning outcomes. When assessment matters, ExamSoft has you covered. Hello everyone, I'm so excited to have Dr. Craig Pepin with us. Thank you, Craig, for making time for this conversation. It's going to be an exciting one, and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much, Divya. I'm looking forward to it as well. Thank you for the invite. So my first question to all my guests this season is, why is community and community building important in today's world for educators? Yeah, yeah I thought about this a lot. And um, I think that you, you included the clause for educators in there, and I think that's really important because... I think in many ways, education feels more under threat today than it has in the past, or at least mm-hmm. my 20 plus years of being in education, it feels that way. It's increasingly become a national issue in K through 12 schools. Um, it's become part of the culture wars. And then, of course, the financial pressures on so many institutions because of COVID and the sort of changing higher education landscape. Right. I think for all those reasons, community building is just so much more important now today, even more so than it was before, because there's so many challenges and it's so easy to feel isolated out there. So that's why I think it is particularly important today. Thank you for sharing that that context, because I hadn't thought of it before, but you're absolutely right. When we have all of these challenges that we are facing, there is a time that we need to engage, possibly come together to engage in some collective action. And that requires various forms of community or collective being towards working towards a particular goal. So I I really appreciate that context. So with that, I wanted to ask you if you could share a quick overview of NIAN and how it came to be and where it is today for our listeners, because I know we'll be talking a lot about NIAN and I wanted to set that up before we get into it. Yeah, thanks. So the New England Educational Assessment Network is actually 26 years old now. It's one of the oldest We'd like to say the oldest, although we've never fully verified it, uh, uh, <laughs> regional assessment group in the United States. And so it originally started back in the 90s. The idea was that they wanted to provide uh, a place where people who had newly important assessment responsibilities at their institution or had maybe not a position in there, but still had to do something with assessment could find ways to sort of exchange ideas with each other, provide support for each other. And so... Um, and build community together. And build community, of course, yes. <laughs> Which is, yes. No, everything that you're saying is the community building, right? 100%. Yeah. So for roughly the first 20 years of its life, NIAN was really primarily characterized by in-person events. Mm-hmm. And so they started with an annual conference, the Fall Forum. And when that proved to be successful, they added a few more dialogues in the disciplines which is primarily aimed at faculty and trying to talk about assessment in particular disciplines was the original vision for it. Then they added a summer institute, which was designed for a retreat atmosphere for teams where NEAN board members and others would sort of serve as consultants, free consultants, essentially. Oh, that's and nice. So, and so when I joined the NEAN board about six years ago, sort of the rhythm of the board was pretty much determined by these three events. Mm-hmm. And so that pretty much characterized most of our activity. Uh, the other thing is that we started a journal, uh, okay. a scholarly peer-reviewed journal nice. uh, with Penn State Press to also, again, provide sort of an outlet for scholarship. So there are a few other things going on as well. And we would talk about various things that we had hoped to do. But really, it was those in-person events that drove community building and the sense of relationship building that, that the NEAN was really trying to to build. Learning assessment specifically really drove, you know, certainly the early founders of NEAN because they saw well, we, we should be doing this regardless of whether there's accreditation right. pressures, right? right? We really want to know. Mm-hmm. Honestly, we have a moral obligation to know if our students are learning. Absolutely. And, and so I think that it was not just the accreditation, which comes around every 10 years or every five years and there's often lulls in between then, but the people who really gravitated to Nian were the people who saw the value in doing it for improvement to right. see if we were meeting the promises that we were making to our students, essentially. So I think that 
was part of sort of the common purpose of Nian. Yeah, that um, shared vision and shared goal of folks coming together. Which yep. is Thank so you. important, yeah. 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 Which is so important to community building. And so that was the energy that sustained Nian. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, until COVID hit, we weren't, really weren't pressured to sort of rethink our models or rethink our, our ways of building community and networking until COVID hit. And all of a sudden, right. just like everybody else, you know, we had a conference scheduled for the end of March, 2020, mm-hmm. that obviously went away right. and we were faced was like, well, we have this mission. We believe it's important. We want to maintain this community as best we can. How do we do that? How do we meet our mission? And that like so many other people sort of forced us into these entirely new venues right. uh, and moving into those new venues really got us to start rethinking a bit about, you know, what are the ways we can build community in this new networked uh and network i mean like you know over the internet virtual, basically yes, yes. <laughs> virtually in this new virtual world what can we do that will be relevant and helpful for our members but also the assessment community as a whole right and that really pushed us to start thinking about channels for reaching people that did not require in person but that also meant that we could reach across the country Uh, to even to other countries. We have an affiliated board member now from Mexico. We had uh, a number of international attendees at our last fall forum. So all of a sudden, you know, it still says New England in the name. But we had to sort of think about, okay, but we're not just New England anymore. Right. And what does that mean? Before, we'd see the same faces at the fall forum and sometimes at dialogues or in the Summer Institute. And so there was these familiar names and faces from other schools. And it was great to get to catch up with them at those times. And then, of course, if you were on the board, then we were meeting in person uh, right. five times a year, five, six times a year. And so right. we, the board also, and there were just 12 board members at that point, would sort of build this sort of very, very tight network and bond with each other, right. again, with the shared vision. And so one of the things that we've been doing is trying to expand the volunteer opportunities, expand beyond just the board members and look for ways to sort of harness the volunteer energy that's out there for people who care about assessment and want to be in contact with other people who care about the same things. As I'm listening to you, two things actually. So one is how you talked about the changing composition of the members because of COVID and the changing modality, right? So Communities can evolve and communities will evolve. Participation will change. And the question is, even a vision and a mission can also change. And the question is whether the group as a whole is moving in a unified direction. Whoever the participants may be rethinking constantly and the need to constantly check in saying, is this who we are? Is this what we still want to do? Is this where we want to go? And I think what I have seen of the last year of your leadership with Nian, you've brought in a lot of interesting programming, really focused educational programming that can serve audiences beyond the New England area. And I'm guessing that that was intentional again, to be of service so that assessment can serve everyone in the best way possible for continuous improvement and student success. And in some ways, we sort of stumbled into a larger audience. So I wouldn't say our mission has changed all that much. Right. Except geographically. So that's why I think it was easy for us to say, well, we're going to do this differently. And at first, I don't think we really thought too extensively about how this represented ways of reaching new audiences. It wasn't mm-hmm. really our intention. It was just we wanted to continue to be a service to New England. Right. And if you look at some of our very early podcasts, one of the first podcasts, in fact, the first podcast we did was an interview with the outgoing president of Nechi. Which again, very New England focus. And if you're not right. in the area, why would you want to talk to her here? What she has to say. Right. But then we did a series on equity and assessments, and all of, you know we published it widely because we wanted to let people know about it. And all of a sudden, mm-hmm. like wow, we're getting a lot of people from around the country. And so all of a sudden, it's not just the same old faces we were seeing. But and and okay. so the mission hasn't changed; it's the audience has changed. Right. Building on what you shared about. Y'all thinking through now, how do we capitalize or how do we support interest in volunteering in the group, the professional community in Nian? What is or should be the purpose and commitment of professional communities, especially on the other end, now that we're on the other end of COVID? Yeah, I don't think, again, I don't think the missions change substantially. And I'm thinking not just of Nian, but of any 
any professional organization in higher ed. What has changed is that there is a clear need to make really good use of the tools that are now available and much more widely accepted. Whereas before, uh, you know, Zoom certainly existed before. Right. Um, but it's become much more normalized now. And so right. I think the purposes don't really change all that much. You know, you have disciplinary organizations. AIR is another good example, AAC and U. So right. their purposes don't really change, but I think they really have to redouble their commitments. We have to redouble our commitment to trying to reach people now because these tools are even more important, not just because COVID has really changed the name of the game, but also the financial restraints are increasing. Right. And whereas 10 years ago, there was plenty of money and budgets to fly to San Diego for a conference or to Los Angeles or Orlando or Washington, D.C. or whatever, I think that a lot of those resources, as budgets have tightened, as enrollments are dropping or they're shifting to other modalities, it's that much more important to continue to serve the communities by providing them with outlets that are relatively low cost. Yeah. And certainly that's the thing we've really seen is that the overall budget that we have is significantly mm -hmm. less, but we're providing many, many more opportunities because we're just able to do them at a much lower cost. What you're sharing is such a great point because what comes up for me is, you know, in the olden days, like you said, you'd go to a conference, you'd meet people in person. It was a one time of, in the year. You'd get to connect, talk about ideas. But then now with these new modalities, you can have these sustained conversations and sustained action that you can engage in. And so would you say part of community building or sustaining communities is about that collective action and staying in sustained conversation? So when you have sustained conversation, there is it opens up the door for better collaboration, better collective action. So how would you say for Nian that work has changed? Oh, how has work changed? I think, um, well, for one thing, I, and I think this is true of a lot of others as well, really miss the in-person component. Mm -hmm. And so we're really looking to now do much more sort of hybrid events. And we're also looking to try to get the board together in person, the board and the volunteers together in person, which has been a real challenge. It seems like we had several in-person meetings scheduled for this past year, and each one turned out to be perfectly timed to coincide with a surge. So right. you know, we had one in September and then Delta hit. And we had one in January, then Omicron hit. And like, ah, each time. How, how has participation or engagement changed in the community, if it has changed at all? I think it's become harder because although the virtual networking does allow for a much wider reach, I think there's also important things that are missing. I think the ability to have those sort of hallway conversations, to just sort of run into people in the hallway, sort of serendipitously, right? right? So much in, in virtual conferences, so much needs to be planned out. And so uh -huh. one of the ways we've tried to address that is by trying to host these sort of virtual happy hours uh -huh. where we encourage people to show up and it can be tough at the end of a long day of conference going. So it's like, right. oh, I'm going to go back on Zoom, but we try to do it in such a way that it's really fun. We sort of create the opportunities to those for those hallway conversations by creating these sort of small groups. It's like, all right, we're going to put people in a random, randomly, we're going to put you in a small group with four other people. And, right. you know, you can talk for 20 minutes and share things and we might, and we'll try to give an icebreaker, but we really want people just the opportunity to, to really connect with each other as best they can over sort of the virtual world. And so we yeah, that's such a great point that you make because I notice that a lot of times when I get such invitations to just hang out, you think that's not the best use of my time. I have 15 other deliverables that I could spend the time on. I, you know, um, exactly. so I'm not, I've got to prioritize that. And in the rare occasions that I do go to these, any kind of just, you know, let's hang out, let's just get to know each other, right? Any of those, especially in the professional organizations when they, when they set these things up. When I go in there, I leave with such a feeling of community, such a feeling of, oh, there are people like me. And then you get to know them on that human level. It's just like a hallway conversation. You get to know the full person. And then that builds that relationship to a point where then you feel you can reach out to them about something or about life or about, can you help me with this? I found that for all our listeners, take it from me, yeah. <laughs> um, but Take that time to, to prioritize actually going and being in community with no purpose, with no agenda, with no 
we have to work and finish this goal because what I have found over the last two years of community building virtually is that there's so much nourishment that comes. And I'm sure, Craig, you can talk to this as well. Like There's so much personal nourishment that comes from being in a space where we're just talking and connecting as human beings and not, okay, we have to get this done, right? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think this is one of the strengths that Nian had when I, even when I first joined. So the board meetings would be, uh, from 10 to 2. So it was a right. fairly large chunk of time and we would right. drive from all over. I drove from Northern Vermont. Mm -hmm. So it was usually about a four hour or three and a half hour round trip to go to these things. Right. But, you know, I'd show up, I'd see these other people and we'd always open meeting by just going around and asking, so what's the latest from you? What's going on on your campus? What's going on in your personal life? And so we'd take maybe the first 20, 25 minutes of the meeting, mm -hmm. just talking to each other about, hey, here's what's going on. Oh my gosh, we lost our president or my daughter is doing really well and here's what she's up to or we just moved and, and you know. Um, yeah, life. And that, life, yeah. And, and, and um, it's, it's, that, is, that was so powerful and that time was so built into the board meetings. And then of course, 10 to two, so we'd break for lunch and there'd be more time for chatting over lunch. And I realized that as I was thinking about this, uh, talking with you, that we sort of switched board meetings to two-hour Zoom meetings. Right. And we've started to not do that as much because we feel the pressure. It's like, we've only got two hours. We've got to get all this stuff done. People have other commitments. Sometimes they can make it. Sometimes they can't. And so we've been sort of skipping that increasingly over the last four or five board meetings. And you know, just thinking about when you asked me to do this, I started to think about the topic. I started to realize like, oh my gosh, we got to bring that back. Yes. We, we can't afford to lose that because yeah. I think that's part of the thing that made people feel really connected. Right. And then once we had shared these either challenges we were facing professionally or, oh my gosh, I'm trying to talk these faculty members into doing X, Y, and Z or whatever it is. And that was the other thing that bonded us because we also not only had a shared vision and a common goal, but we were also facing very similar challenges. Right. And so even just being able to vent about it, even if you couldn't, there wasn't right. an automatic solution that somebody else could suggest, although we did get many solutions. I did. Right. Um, just that was another way to really sort of build that sense of community and wow. I'm facing this challenge at my school and there's so many of us who are sort of loan operators. There's one learning assessment director, or maybe it's a two person shop or, you know, you're the faculty member who's trying to organize the gen ed assessment or whatever it is. It can feel really lonely and to, and to know that other people are like feeling similar challenges, facing similar challenges and, and frustrated by them as well. Right. As you're talking, the parallel that, that immediately comes up is a lot of times when I go and consult with clients or when I go and consult in the higher ed space, I'll ask folks, you know, how much time, because I'm all for assessment for continuous improvement. And I constantly make the case that if you're doing assessment for continuous improvement, you're fulfilling the accreditors' demands. That's what they want to see, because that's the commitment they want to see to the communities that you're serving. So when I go into these conversations, I'll say, so how much time are you spending in your curricular meetings talking about assessment for continuous improvement or using the data for continuous improvement or or reviewing your teaching and learning practices or your curriculum, how much time are you really focused on student learning and success? And folks would say, and not on committee, like this has to go through committee in the next two days. And this deadline has come up and like the procedural, we have to get stuff done. And so what makes me nervous now as I'm listening to you is yes, like all through Zoom, we're getting into again, task oriented community building instead of relationship building. Because again, we're getting pressed for time. So what gets lost and get when pressed for time is the relationship building piece, because we think that's not important when actually that should be the cornerstone of any work that we do. And so all, everyone will say, we don't have time. We have a one hour committee meeting, curriculum meeting once a month, and we have to get so much done during that time. But that's the only time that folks come together. That's the only time you can be in a space together across the whole program or across disciplines or whatever it is. And so again, listeners, if, there are, if there's times that you're coming together as a committee or as a group for action, especially over Zoom, 
more so now than ever. Please make time for checking in with each other as human beings, because I think that will nourish you and energize you for the work that has to get done. So we need to reprioritize our time. So I realized that I didn't ask you, what is community to you? And is community the same as networking? Yeah, I'd like to take the second one first, actually. Okay. Um, yes. I, I, because I don't think they're the same thing. I think they have mm-hmm. different goals. Mm-hmm. And to me, networking is more individualistic. In other words, right. you, you sort of engage in networking for your own particular purposes. Got it. If that makes sense. And yes. so there's some overlap there where you're trying to build some relationships, but it's not the same as building community. Because the main difference there is that community is a place where people have a sort of shared sense of purpose, a shared sense of identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is not necessarily the same in networking. So right. you know, I, if I was going to conferences to explicitly network, I'm going to hand out my cards. I hope I'm going to meet people. But then networking could lead to community building, but it's not the, not the same thing. So Wonderful. it's that shared sense of purpose, that shared sense of identity. Right common goals that really that's what characterizes community so yeah that's beautifully said thank you so much for sharing that so what are some challenges to building and sustaining community and how do you build community when there is so much difference we already we started off with the context i think the biggest challenge and the biggest way to overcome challenges of difference Mm -hmm. are civility and transparency Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I beautifully mean, put. Thank it you. Yeah, really is civility and transparency. So the problem is, and the challenge is that often there are real issues. And I was just listening to an interview, someone who uh, writing a book, uh, published a book called Against Civility, mm-hmm. and the argument was essentially like change doesn't happen mm-hmm. only by being civil, because being civil can sort of mask the inequities that need to be challenged. And I, right. I totally get that. Yes. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I don't think you'll be able to overcome these differences unless you're able to start a conversation. Right. And so when there's so much difference, you have to build that level of trust and build that level of community. You're never going to overcome the difference unless you're able to talk and you're able to hold conversations. And it starts with civility and it starts with respecting viewpoints that are different from yours and trying to understand where those viewpoints come from. There's less sort of political differentiation within, you know, the assessment community that I know of. But then again, there's probably more variation there that I simply don't know about because we feel that it's not really relevant to the goals of the organization. Right. I think that the other challenge, and this is when I became president of NEAN, the thing that I really did want to change is I wanted to make the organization a little bit more transparent. I wanted the elections to be more open, so it was more clear who could be nominated and who could not be nominated. When I was on the board, it was a great board. I was very lucky to be on the board, but the elections could have been more transparent. You have to be open with people about here's what the organization is doing and here's what we'd like to do. And there will be differences of opinion. Certainly we have disagreements at board meetings and then we decide by voting on it. Right. Clearly. But in terms of building and sustaining community, I think those are the two things that are just so important. And that's true of really any community, whether it's your neighborhood, whether it's your professional organization, whether it's the college that you work at, those two things, I think it it, it starts with them. Yeah. Great points. Thank you for sharing. And so building on that question and your response, how do you structure and organize communities for action and impact? Mm -hmm. So whether it's institutional communities or communities like NEAN, professional communities, what are the best practices, so to speak, that come oh. to mind for you? You know, I'm just... Do I a have prof- a whole day? Is that is that the... <laughs> well, I'm not even sure I'm the best person to add. I'm just a professor of history who stumbled into this leadership position and is doing the best he can. I mean, honestly, you know, I, I never had training in any of this stuff. I tried to start with certain basic principles. And if I had to add one more to civility and transparency, it'd be empathy. Right. And I think there are also challenges depending on the size of the organization and the, and the community. Right. NEAN has grown somewhat bigger. We create a new category called the affiliated board member who basically participate in board meetings and volunteer and do everything that except vote on, vote on the issues. Right. Uh-huh. So we have to change our constitution at, at some point. And so one of the ways we've evolved is to meet less often as a board because we used to just, the board did everything. 
mm-hmm. right? And we get together these meetings, we'd hammer out, okay, what's the conference theme going to be next year? What are we going to do with membership rates? You know, uh, how are we going to come up with, you know, how are we going to support the, the journal? All these different things. And the board met collectively and decided everything. And we, what we've tried to do is evolved a little bit more so we have more of a committee structure. Right. So the board still meets. It's obviously it meets a little bit less often and we try to have more committee meetings. So smaller groups of people, right. four or five or six, as opposed to the 12 plus the eight or 10 affiliated board members, depending on who comes to a board meeting. Right. So we just had to be, but I think we've retained our structure of being an even more open, uh, as transparent as we can be, but also being a very flat structure. And I think it's really the community building that enables that flat structure. But it's harder to maintain that at a larger organization. Right. As I'm listening to you, I'm thinking of all the conversations that I've had and the research that I've done into how different organizations are set up. And I think what comes up is it can be hierarchical, it can be flat, but from an interaction, power play, decision-making space, there needs to be flexibility and there needs to be actually openness and like you said transparency and distribution of power if it's very hierarchical in terms of roles and it's also hierarchical in decision making and power then there's less opportunity for community building in terms of everyone having a voice in terms Mm -hmm. of everyone there then the responsibility falls more on leadership to make sure that the organization is driven in a direction and has the sense of community. So their messaging becomes really important. And the other conversations that I've had, it comes up. It's like, how do we check for power? How do we allow for different viewpoints to have same weight, same value in any conversation in driving decision-making? So any other thoughts that come to mind? I guess, you know, when I was a young academic, I was convinced that the power of ideas were sufficient to make change happen. Mm-hmm. And so at, at, at Champlain College, we attempted radical transformation of our gen ed program about, about 15 years ago. It was driven by a president who really had this idea, this vision he wanted to achieve. And he asked faculty across campus to come up with ideas. He said, blue sky thinking, what are really innovative things that we could do? Right. And so I was super excited about this. I was involved in like two separate of the working groups and, um, the ideas we came up were really amazing. But then you've got to get all of the faculty together to collectively agree on something. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy for things to get watered down. And right. I was so convinced that the power of the ideas was enough. And I was new at the institution. I've only been there about a year and a half when we went right. through this thing. Right. Um, that I got very strident, was actually thought of as not very collegial, as a matter of fact, by my right. colleagues because I was convinced we should do this. Why can't we do this? So what it really brought home to me is that you may not always overcome the sort of differences, but if you have relationships mm-hmm. that are built up over time, it was the people who had been there for 10 years, for 12 years, for 15 years, right. who were able to sort of, well, here's how we're going to try to get things done. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things that really started to, to bring home to me is just the importance of community building at my own institution. So if we're talking about my institution now, Right. I think, you know, showing up to things is so important. Right. Just being there when your colleagues are presenting on something. And it's so much harder to do under COVID. But that's where the relationship building really starts, I think. So That's such a great point because I see more and more the need in meetings for celebration where we celebrate one another, the little things, the little wins, the accomplishments, because it's such a positive way in which, again, it's such an easy way to build relationships, meaningful relationships. If we take the time, that two minutes, to say, I really appreciated this, or this was wonderful, and I read this article, because that, again, becomes relationship building without an agenda. I'm not saying this, do this, so that you can, you know, that becomes a networking ploy, right? right? Um, but from a community space where it's saying, oh, I can see where you're doing this and I'm doing this and I can see a connection. Or I learned a lot from what you did and that helped me act in this space a different way. Yeah. So in, in communities, yeah, right, you care about the other people in the community. And right. that's, again, a difference between communities and networking, whereas networking right. is sort of more of a use case there. Yeah. But for communities, you care when other members of the community are successful. Yes. And you care because you care about them as individuals, uh, not just because you have this shared purpose, but you because you feel a connection to them in some way, shape, or yes. form. Yes, beautifully so, put, yeah. Right. 
Yeah. So you started talking about this. So you recently started a new program in Chaplain. What is it about and how did community building help overcome the obstacles to getting it started? I know you started alluding to this and, you know, I'd like to go deeper. Yeah. So actually what I was talking about earlier was comprehensive redesign of our general education system, which mm-hmm. we did 15 years ago. Okay. Um, but over the years, and it was completely interdisciplinary. Uh, right. which is one of the things that really drew me to it. It's like, well, that's new. It's not set in particular disciplines or it's not a menu-driven gen ed system. When you're in a community, you want to try to reach compromise because you don't want to um, upset the apple cart. You don't want to be seen as a non, you know, somebody who's not clear. And that's one of the potential negatives of, of community mm-hmm. is that it can be really hard to do something that's truly different that people right. don't understand. And so, About four years ago, we had the opportunity to pilot a new program. It was a build your own major, Mm -hmm. basically using the existing strengths that Champlain had in professional education and also had a COMC-based gen ed component in it. Okay. So the idea was that this magnificent gen ed structure, this interdisciplinary gen ed, which I taught in for 12 years, which I'd liked on many, many levels, but I felt that there was something we could do a little bit differently in the world of COMC-based education, where we have these institutional learning outcomes, we call them our college competencies, and they're present in the curricular structure and in the curricular planning, but they're not really visible to the students. And the students right. really didn't know that much about them. Right. And so in this new program, we want to say, okay, we want to bring those front and center. So things like communication, collaboration, information literacy, inquiry, analytical thinking, those sorts of things. Uh, right. It sounds familiar to anyone who's done institutional learning outcomes, no doubt. But we want to really make them front and center by basically making them the clear purpose of general education and also asking students to demonstrate proficiency in them as a condition of graduation, which really helps focus the students on coursework, not as some hoop to jump through, like, oh, I could take that second year gen ed course and now I never have to think about it again. Right. But rather as learning opportunities, like, is this developing my competencies? Which ones am I developing? Yep. And how does it, how would I apply it in the real world? And, and how, you know, it, Exactly. Yes. And how would I apply in the real world? So competency-based education is pretty new. I mean, there's some place I've been doing it for a long time and it had a moment in the sun about four or five years ago when everybody was talking about it. It certainly was something that a lot of my colleagues found it very difficult to understand. Um, and they were very suspicious of it. What does it mean for my program? What does it mean for the gen ed program that exists now? Um, and so yeah, it's like a, it's an overhaul. You have to think of it like from a whole different angle, systemic change. Yeah. Yeah. So we could never do the wholesale change. Like we're not going to re- change the entire curriculum again to be this competency based right. education. So we instead we're just going to do a pilot program. Let's treat it as a standalone professional program where the students build their own major and they have this competency based gen education spine. But it, it threatened the identities of a lot of people at Champlain for different reasons. My colleagues in the general education sphere were pretty much threatened that our program was going to be replaced for some students by this completely different program. They didn't know what that meant and and what it would look like. Our colleagues in the professional programs were really skeptical of the idea of combining two different professionals areas into one major. It took us a long time and a lot of meetings and a lot of one-on-one chats over coffee explaining things to people, you know, the, the number of times that I sort of explained the same thing over and over again before it finally people go, Oh, I understand what you're trying to do now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. It was just yeah. a lot of sort of hostility to change. And when you're in a community, the innovation can be really hard. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You make a you... great point. Yes. So that was really where community building helped in, you know, it was the faculty, is myself and three other faculty members who are going to be the lead faculty in this new program. We did not have a program director because we want to have a very flat organization within the program. Uh, but, you know, most of us had been at the institution for over 10 years. And so that meant that we already had reputations on campus of people who would work together. Two of my colleagues had previously been presidents of faculty senate. So there was some basis of trust that already existed. Right with a number of us, but it still took an awful lot of one-on-one meetings. And, you know, as I was saying, to sort of build enough of a consensus where we could finally 
take it to curriculum committee, get it through faculty senate, and finally start it up. So, and we started up in the first year, we had 10 students. We're now in the second year, we have 19 students, which for a new program at a small college like Champlain is pretty good. We're pretty happy about that. So, yeah. I think the story that you just shared highlights building trust aspect, building those relationships aspect, the importance of communication, clarification. And the point that you raise, I don't think I've ever heard it so well put before about it may, because community is often a shared identity, a shared vision, a shared goal, when you want to take a 180 from it, maybe because the pathway that you see to the goal is different from what everyone else sees or you want to approach it differently or you want to move in a whole new direction because that's what you see as speaking to that mission or your interpretation of it it can be really hard to get to build the community to move with you and then when you go back to the point that you made about caring for your community then you are responsible and you are in most situations you are committed in some ways or expected to bring that community along unless you're saying, okay, I, I don't think that I can. And so I think this community is no longer for me. And I have to find another space that I can call community and move and identify with and move forward. Right. So it was just beautiful. Thank you for sharing that experience and that example yeah. with us. Yeah. I'll yeah. add one thing. And that is when you're in a community, mm-hmm. you uh, care about the other members of that community. Right. And so if they feel threatened in some way, shape or form, you don't want them to feel threatened. Yes. <laughs> right? Absolutely. So again, that's the danger that communities can prevent change from happening, prevent innovation. So, but at the same time, if you've built up a level of trust, then perhaps they're willing to give you the benefit of the doubt. I say, okay, well, I'm really worried about this, but I trust you. You know, I, I see you. We get together socially once a month. Uh, I see you on campus. We get we have lunch sometimes together, or we all work at the same institution, uh, and we want the institution to succeed. And so, in, in some ways, that was one of the ways we had to try to move beyond this particular interest or identities with their special programs. They have identities that are rooted in those particular fields, right? But then they also have an identity that's like, well, Champlain College. We want to see Champlain College succeed, and we had to sort of appeal to that. It's like, look. We're going to be able to reach students that Champlain has otherwise not really reached, we think, and provide them certain students that have been, we've lost at Champlain because of the particular focus and structure of Champlain by providing them with an alternative and reaching out to students who might have looked at Champlain but really didn't want to commit to a major first semester, first year. So appealing to that shared, sort of emphasizing the identity of the community of Champlain Mm-hmm. And saying that's where we, that's what we share and that's what we can do together. And right. that's ultimately, I think, how we were able to get it through. Yeah. And what you're saying is actually something that I haven't heard before, or at least for me, what it's also saying is that there is an emotionality to it because you're invested, because you care. So the stakes are higher or you're engaged in a different way with your whole human being, which can then also be frustrating because then if you're working in a way where you don't feel supported in that community or you don't feel everyone understands your vision or your direction, if you're not able to get the group behind you, get the community to understand and align with what you're trying to do for the community or with the community, then you're hurt that much more. You may want to disengage that much more. So there is an emotional element to it because you're trying to be empathetic. You care. You're invested in that relationship. So thank you. Thank you for sharing. I would say, and there's one other thing, and that is that if you have been embedded in a community for a long time, Mm -hmm. it can be very, very difficult to leave that community. So because you've built those relationships, and I'm thinking of a really good friend of mine who was passed over for promotion and then sought a professional opportunity uh, at another college, administrative Mm -hmm. level position. Mm -hmm. They'd been at this one place for 16 years and had all these relationships and had served in an interim position in this administrative position and thought that going to another school would allow them to like, oh, I'll just do this same position at another school. They found that by going to that other school, they were essentially starting from scratch and all the relationships that they could sort of count on and the level of trust that they had built up at their previous institution did not exist at the new place. So there's a pretty steep cost to 
for institutional communities going from one to the other, it can be, it can be very challenging. Right. Um, and hard. I don't think, you know, it'd be much harder for me to do that. <laughs> no, and you raise these really, really good things to think about, which is, so when we are making this change or transition or anything, we need to be thinking about what is that going to take? What is building community in the new space going to take? And I have to invest that energy and I have to account for that time. It's not going to be all rosy and <laughs> easy because I have the experience, I have the skill, all of that may be there, but you have to build that trust. You have to demonstrate transparency, as you said, you have to show empathy, show that you care, build alignment over a common vision. So everything that you've said, that has to be done all over again. And that takes time too. So thank you, Craig. So I have a, just a few more questions for you. So one is, is collaboration possible without community? What are some tools that people can use to build consensus, given your experience? Two questions, yes. Two separate questions. Let me take, yes. uh, is collaboration possible without a community? It, it absolutely is. Um mm-hmm. Because collaboration is usually, particularly if it's for a defined purpose for a defined length of time. Right. You don't need to have community in order to have successful collaboration. And I think anyways, and I I thought about this. But both require relationship building though, right? Collaboration. I don't think it does. I mean, I think collaboration can work better. It can be task-oriented. Okay. It it can be task-oriented. And I think, I've thought about this in part because collaboration is one of our college competencies. And so we're thinking about how to teach it. I've worked with faculty in the business school and in our game studio, we have a really Mm -hmm. big game design program and the game studio in particular, um, it's very intensive. It has very intensive collaborative spaces and they've thought Mm -hmm. long and hard about how to make collaboration successful. Okay. In particular, when you don't necessarily, you know, it's, it's not people that you, you don't see them outside of work. You know, there may be a relationship there. It doesn't have to be a relationship for collaboration to work. Right. You do have to, you know, understand what the, you have to communicate with each other. You have to know what the processes are. Uh, you have to have shared accountability. It has to have a common goal, just like a community does. Right. Um, but you can definitely have successful collaboration mm-hmm. without community, although it usually goes better. Right. <laughs> if, there's a connection that extends beyond the project that you're working right. on at that particular point in time. But yeah, no, you don't need to have community in order to have yeah. success. No, well said. I, I take back yeah. what I think I'm convinced by your logic. So, yeah. <laughs> and then how do you build consensus or what, what are your strategies? Oh my gosh. Um, that's a much harder question. <laughs> you know, it is certainly what assessment professionals are trying to tackle all the time. Right. Right. It is really, really difficult because consensus, you know, going back to what we said, what is a community? A community is a shared vision. Well, if you don't have that shared vision, mm-hmm. right, you really have a challenge. You don't really right. have a community. And so to some extent, having a consensus of some kind or at least a shared goal is a precondition for even having a community to begin with. But then how do you build consensus that this is the way to go? Oh, um, <laughs> I honestly, you know, there's so many tools that we can use and none of them is a silver bullet. <laughs> right. If that makes sense, right? Yes, no, just, absolutely. You know, you, you do the relationship building, you try, you make the case over and over again, you are patient. It's like, well, I've said this for the sixth time. I was a meeting with an administrator just recently um, uh, <laughs> whereby we patiently explained this new degree design lab multiple times and they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. Didn't think it, it fit with some of the other things we were doing. And uh, just all of a sudden, like the sixth time we explained it, they're like, oh, I get it now. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, you're just like my students. Why should we <laughs> expect that grownups are any good different? You know, they need right. to be exposed to it multiple times. Right. You need to live with it for a little bit. So in yeah. some ways, consensus building is sort of becoming accustomed to new ideas. Right. And That's so, a great way to put it. Yeah. 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 yeah, Kwame Appiah talks about this a lot in is this great book, which I I love, called Cosmopolitanism. Mm-hmm. And it is all about really how do people who have these fundamental differences learn how to coexist and even form communities. Right. And one of the key takeaways from that book is you just become used to each other. 
And I think it's, it's, it <laughs> sounds so simple. Right? Yeah, familiarity, yes. right. You just become used to each other. And you know, he talks about growing up communities where there are people with different religions. And in a wider context, those religions are often opposed to each other and engage in violence against each other. But he says there's plenty of communities where those, those just aren't an issue. Right. And he, he says that part of it is you just get used to being with those people and they become right. part of your world. Right. And I think the same thing goes for ideas is that people have to sit with them for a little bit. You know, And again, going back to when I was the young, well, I wouldn't call myself a firebrand, but I was certainly <laughs> excited by the potential of really amazing innovation right. and utterly could not, I just could not figure out why other people couldn't see the power of that idea. Yes. Yes. I, right? I, can, I can empathize. <laughs> and so, yeah. So it then becomes this living with that idea for a while. So I think that's part of how you build consensus. And there's another element to it, to the extent to which I talk about identities a lot, because being an interdisciplinarian means that you get introduced to new things all the time, which is wonderful. And one of the concepts I got introduced to about six, seven years ago when I started to teach a brand new course was social identity theory. Okay. And social identity theory talks about communities in terms of group identities. Right. And if you think about it from that angle, you see things in a very different light, I think, when it comes to communities, because it really is about a shared purpose, it's shared sense of belonging to the same community, that shared sense of belonging. And one of the things that's very effective at mobilizing consensus is a threat from outside. And so ideally, we would be able to build positive communities but sometimes if, you know, your program is threatened or your general education program is threatened, somebody wants to come in and dramatically change it, that can be an enormous way of building consensus. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's no, and, not... and, and that's the truth, right? And it's a great insight and it's a great tool. So you can build consensus by planting a seed, letting it sit, then repeating that idea, letting the idea grow on people. You can build consensus because there's a common challenge or a common threat, or like there's a shared vision. So there are multiple ways where everyone aligns with the goals. Thank you. Is there anything else, any other strategies or thoughts no, about think, consensus building? You know, I think reminding people that shared vision and then providing, as we talked about earlier, the sense of belonging. Yeah. So even if there isn't a shared vision, a completely shared vision, mm -hmm. I mean, we may think we're on the same page, but when we get talking to her like, oh, well, that's not what I was thinking about or, right. you know, but going back to what we were saying earlier is just that building that sense of belonging and that sense of belonging comes from caring about the other members of the community and caring about when they're successful and helping them when they're running into road blocks or just being a sounding board to vent, you know, if somebody wants to vent, just being there, listening to them. It's like, look, yeah, wow, that sounds awful. And it took me a long time to build that listening thing mm -hmm. because I, by nature, I'm a problem solver. Mm -hmm. And so when people come to me and talk about the challenges they're facing, it used to be that my first reaction was, well, let me help you find a solution. Right. And uh, this is what being married for 30 years will get you. It's like, it took me a long time to figure out that sometimes my wife just wanted me to listen. Yes. She didn't want a solution. Yes. That's <laughs> all she wanted. And so taking yes. that, it took me, oh, I don't know, 15 years of marriage to figure that out. So taking that with me to thinking about community building is like, tell me what's going on. And you don't want me to come up with a solution. You just want me to say, wow, that sounds terrible. I'm really sorry you had to go through that. So yeah. Yeah. I'll that out. Thank you for sharing that. That's, again, great insight for many of us um, listening. So I have one more important question. What types of leadership does it take to build and sustain a community? What are your insights on effective leadership? Wow. Um, I think what a community needs is dependent on where that community is. Okay. So there are times when a community needs someone who comes in with a clear vision that they're going to try to provide guidance mm -hmm. and say, let's see where we fit within this vision. Mm -hmm. um, there are times when a community needs healing and empathy where gone through a traumatic episode of some kind and they need someone who come in who is more of a listener. Right. Uh, so it really depends on the community, on where the community is. But it just gets back to the things that I talked about 
at the beginning, uh, really, I, I circle back to that, you know, civility, empathy, and transparency. One of the things I learned from an earlier president at Champlain College was just being really open with, look, here's our budgetary situation. Here's our enrollment situation. Here's what the numbers look like. I learned from that president, Dave Finney, just how valuable that can be, the transparency and how much it makes people feel, even if they're not part of the decision-making process, if they know what's going on and you share the overall picture with people, I think it makes a huge difference in their sense of belonging. I remember years ago, I was working for another institution and something went wrong with my paycheck. And so I had an appointment with somebody in the human resources department and they were going to, they were going to tell me what was going on and they wouldn't explain to me why. And it was so frustrating. It was like, that's just the way it is. And we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And I got so angry Mm -hmm. and finally he just explained, and it was just this mundane explanation. Mm -hmm. And I said, thank you. Was that so hard? (laughs) I was not very nice about it. But, you know, if you understand the reasons behind why things are the way they are, you're much more likely to be accepting of, oh, I, yeah, I see why we're not getting a raise this year, or I see why we're redirecting resources to this, or I see, you know, and that was something I learned from President Finney, which I thought was really, really helpful to know. And so that's one of the things I've tried to take to Nian is like, we want to know. Everybody knows, well, here's where our budget is. Here's how our planning process is. We're not making decisions behind closed doors. We really want people to know. And then the civility, of course, and the and the empathy. So I think those are the three things I keep coming back to. I don't think it's, I really don't think I'm the first person to say those things. But, uh, <laughs> no, but thank you for saying them because then calling them out, it's super helpful, I think, to contextualize it, to see how it plays out with examples in higher ed. So my final question to you is, For folks who are, I don't know whether introverts is the right word, but for folks who do feel alone, and I know a lot of assessment folks feel alone, a lot of faculty may feel alone in their experience within their departments, outside of their departments, staff members, right? Depending on the culture of the organization, the level of toxicity, the level of imposter syndrome, all the interplaying forces. How do you find community when you feel all alone and you don't know what to do? You know... It, it's so hard, especially in the last two years, I think, mm-hmm. because all the forces that have sort of helped accidental community be created uh, have been sort of taken away. So the, running into people in the hallway, having lunch with people, seeing them on the walk as you're going to and from class, having fun before the meeting starts. One of my good friends, uh, like a month after the pandemic started, he said, and this, I'm going to out myself as a real nerd here. Mm -hmm. He said, Hey, would you like to join a Dungeons and Dragons campaign? (laughs) Which (laughs) sounds really funny, Uh uh, but it's faculty and librarians and a group of us. And we would just get to meet every week. And we found increasingly that, um, uh, we would, it would take longer and longer for us to actually start the game because we'd spend the first half hour, 20 minutes, 40 minutes. And last, you know, last time we met, it was like 48 minutes, I think I clocked it, before we actually started the game, just talking to each other. And so taking the initiative is part of it. And it doesn't come naturally. It does not come naturally to me. I'm not a person who just automatically reaches out to connect with people. Um, how do we do it? Um, Again, because it doesn't come naturally to me, I'm not the best person to ask, to be honest with you. But I do think that showing up means so much. You know, it's yeah. so easy to say, oh, gosh, so-and-so is going to give a presentation on this, this new teaching technique that they developed. And I really want to, you know, I feel like I should go, but I can't take another Zoom meeting. Showing up makes all the difference in the world, I think. And just being there for your colleagues so that they'll be there for you. Um, it's not a very not a very satisfactory answer, is it? No. So given that that doesn't come easily for you, I think it's a great answer because when you started off responding to this question, you talked about those hallway conversations and walking across people. And as soon as you said that, like visually, I could think of, you know, how I would walk from one office to the other or from one meeting to the other. And I'd find like as I'm crossing people, I would smile. That was one of the nice things for me, right? Like you'd smile or you'd see someone, what they wore or something like there'd be an offhanded compliment. And then you see them often enough that over time, then you'll say hello and then say, okay, where are you from? What are you from? Or what do you do? What do you do? And that way you'd connect, right? 
right? And, and what you're saying about showing up is just is in a way kind of that, like showing up to spaces where if you see a familiar face or if you see a known name to just say, hello, it's good to see you again or, you know, find you here again, just doing that actively, that's the only step we do, then there's ways in which we can get invited into more spaces and then find ourselves be part of a community. So yeah. Um, yeah. invited into more spaces. I love that phrase <laughs> because I think that is, that is really what it's all about is sort of in, yeah. in, in getting invited into spaces. And so really, really worried about, I, get, I don't have a good answer because I'm really worried about it because it's become easy for so many of us to just work from home. And when our president last year said, we're going back to in-person classes, period, there will be no, no remote classes for traditional students. Uh, there was a big outcry because people are like, well, you know, I'm really worried. And I was really glad that he, he did that. I thought it was really important. But even so, I increasingly see the halls and the building where I am, people come in, they teach their class, and then they go straight home again. And so it's not true of everybody, obviously, but there's a, a large number of people. And so those opportunities are less and less. And so I don't have a good answer because I'm really worried about it. I'm really yeah. concerned about it. And I don't know what a good solution to it is yeah and i think you've just raised the awareness and i want to actually end on that note the insights that you've shared are so valuable empathy transparency communication to build a sense of belonging to figure out what that community needs at each point in time all of these things that you've shared in addition to that you've also highlighted which for me this is what i want to leave our listeners with it is very easy, I feel, like what I've gained, like the biggest thing now that I want to grapple with <laughs> uh, from our conversation is actually this worry that you have, because I'm starting to share it. Like, So I'm in community with you. <laughs> I'm starting to, to share that concern that we unknowingly or unconsciously, but very slowly are moving into a transaction-based environment because of the limitations of modality. That whatever spaces we had for impromptu, spontaneous relationship building is getting lost, even though there are so many other conveniences of being on Zoom and being remote. And so we need to now more than ever actively and intentionally make sure we create spaces for spontaneous communities, spontaneous relationship building and inclusion, right? So if we don't do that, then you won't have that hallway conversation because people are coming in, finishing their task and going out. So we become more and more part of the capitalistic system of, oh, there's increased efficiency now that everyone's working from home. We thought the productivity will drop, but the productivity is not dropping because we're trying to do like 100%, <laughs> you know, from home. And all that time that would refresh us with the relationships and the side conversations and the check-ins, all of that is lost. We're going from meeting to meeting to meeting. I want to leave our our listeners with that, that if you take one thing from this conversation, and not that you should, there are all of these amazing tools um, and insights that you've shared, Craig, and so I appreciate that. If you want to take one thing, I think both Craig and I, and I'm speaking for you. So, yeah. uh, well, I, I would add one thing. Yes. And that is that you said, I think the key thing that you said is spaces for spontaneity. Yes. Right. And um, those can be virtual. Yes. Uh, and I will say that I think there may be a generational thing going on here where I am having a difficult time adjusting to virtual spontaneity spaces. I <laughs> But it may be a lot easier for the people who are considerably younger than I am. If we can do that and make sure that we create spaces where we build, we make time for each other, because that is just as important as getting a task done. Productivity is can only serve us so much. Relationships, health, mental health, physical health, emotional health makes all the difference. And maintaining those needs, needs a community. So any final words, Craig, before we sign off? I would say also that we're really seeing in the students. I'm in the middle of doing these focus groups with first year and second year students. Um, and it's really striking. And I've had conversations with colleagues. It was really striking how particularly the second year students, the ones who came to college at the height of the pandemic, who experienced this where most of their classes were online. So they were on campus, but they were sitting in their dorm rooms. They'd come to the cafeteria and picked up their box lunch and go back to eat it in their dorm rooms. and. Uh, you know, we're forbidden from getting together in groups and you can see the effects of it. We're talking about what is going on with the current crop of 
students. And I think right. so much of it has to do with COVID and yeah. this inability because colleges for students are also places for community building, really, yes. really powerful community building. And that was taken away from them uh, last right. year. So. Yeah. It reminds me of my five-year-old who we keep teaching her how to share and then during the last two years, we said no sharing, no, you know, don't yeah. don't let anyone touch whatever. Oh. And so the, the mixed messages of yeah. how I see that play out now saying, can I give her my food or can I give her my toy or can I, yeah. I can see what you're saying about students too. Like, how do we do it now? We don't know. We don't have any, we've not observed it before. So now we have to learn this whole new tool. And if so, as faculty, as educators, we have a responsibility to embody it and demonstrate it for our students and encourage it among them and help them see that relationship building, community building is as important as getting work done. It's part of getting work done. So it is. Thank you so much for such a rich conversation. Uh, time has just flown by. I really yeah. appreciate your insights and your wisdom, Craig. Thank you. Well, my pleasure, Divya. It was a lot of fun to think about these issues and to have you push me to really think about them in ways that I hadn't really thought of before. So thank you again. Thank you. Pedagogo, brought to you by ExamSoft, the digital assessment solution that gives you actionable data for improved learning outcomes. When assessment matters, ExamSoft has you covered. This podcast was produced by Divya Beta and the ExamSoft team. Audio engineering and editing by Adam Karsten and the A2K Productions crew. This podcast is intended as a public service for entertainment and educational purposes only and is not a legal interpretation nor statement of ExamSoft policy, products, or services. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts or guests of this show are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of ExamSoft or any of its officials, nor does any appearance on this program imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Additionally, reference to any specific product, service, or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by ExamSoft. This podcast is the property of ExamSoft Worldwide LLC and it's protected under U.S. and international copyright and trademark laws. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission of ExamSoft. <laughs>